Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of the On the Sidelines podcast. I'm Dom Picaro. We have a great guest for you today on episode 23. It is Trip Durham. Now, Trip is a longtime PA announcer for Duke Athletics, including football and basketball, president of the National Association of College Marketing Administrators. He's also the former associate director of athletics for Elon University and founder of 2D Consulting. So, pretty big resume, Trip. He joins us now. How are you, Trip? Don, I'm doing well. Thank you very much. 23 episodes. Wow, I can remember when it was like episode number one. So well done to get to this point. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long, fun ride. We've had some great guests and uh, I'm sure you have a lot of great information and stories here to share on the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll find out by the end of this, won't we? All right. If you like these episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at OTS underscore podcast underscore or on Instagram at OTS underscore pod. All right, Trip, we'll get started right away. Uh, first, can you just kind of explain how you got your start in the sports industry and what led you to where you are now? When I was a freshman in high school, I was interested in baseball, but I knew that I wasn't very good and I probably couldn't make the team. But I like the idea of supporting it. So somebody introduced me to the concept of being a manager. And so I was a manager from my high school varsity baseball team my freshman year that led to be a manager for my varsity basketball team my sophomore year. And it seemed like the more that I progressed as a person, the more I really liked the idea of being involved in sports. So I guess if you take it all the way back to when I was 13 and 14 years old, you could say technically my start started then, I guess. Now, with what you do right now, you obviously have a lot of jobs under your belt with Duke and 2D uh, Consulting, but can you just kind of take us through what you do on a day-to-day basis with 2D Consulting in regards to the sports industry? Well, I appreciate the, the question and the opportunity. Uh, when I left Elon in 2009, uh, my wife was pretty set with the position that she has here in the central North Carolina area. So we decided either I go looking for a job and then if I find one, she's got to find a new job or we could stay stable uh, in an area that we've created a lot of roots and I can go look for a a new job. So after some um, exploration, I decided that it was probably time for me to hang my own shingle. So I developed the name 2D Consulting and I work in two buckets. Bucket number one, is working brand assessment, community relations, marketing assessments, anything that is external related for college athletic programs uh, or conference offices. The second bucket is project management. In essence, Don, it's being a part-time employee for a sports agency like the NCAA or the marketing arm of Steamboat Springs Resort, who obviously is very much into sport. Uh, and handling different projects for them. So between the two, that's 99% of my workload. The other 1% of the workload is the public address and voice work that I do. And that all works and complement the three things together. So hopefully that's enough of a snapshot to give your audience a, a bit of an idea of what it is I do and who I am. What gave you the idea to start 2D Consulting? I got tired of being fired. Um, in 1991, my first real job out of college, I was working as a teacher's assistant here in the state of North Carolina and the relatively new governor needed to go through some state cutbacks. So he said, look, last people hired need to be the first people fired. So I was shown the door, worked for a minor league baseball club in Winston-Salem, had a great experience, but when the ownership changed, a new general manager came in and he wanted to bring in his own people. That's an age old story. Um, So out the door I go again, because I'm not part of their program. And then after 14 years at Elon, an amazing experience, uh, one that I still treasure to this day and have some wonderful friends, a new athletic director. And in time, I was not part of that person's vision. So if you're keeping score, that's three times. And so I decided that I had enough in my portfolio in which I could leverage the opportunity to open up my own business, took a flyer because it was during the most protracted time at the time in our financial history uh, in decades. You know, it was the crash of seven and eight or the depression or suppression, seven and eight. Uh, So to open up my own business, it uh, took a little bit of risk, but a lot of faith. And again, if I don't have the portfolio of working in sports, I certainly can't do what I've done. 
how different was it going from working for with teams your whole life with the minor league baseball club with Elon to now going over and working as your own business for these teams instead of directly under their ownership? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that. And it's almost like you and I practiced for this interview, which of course we <laughs> certainly did not. Uh, when Elon told me in March of 09 that I was not needed back on campus the next day, there was a risk that I was running for the 09-10 academic year that I would be without a sports team directly affiliated with for the first time since high school. So it would have been, I was affiliated with a program from 1982-83 through the 2008-2009 academic year. And so to have that shift of not having a program to be affiliated with, uh, that was weighing on me pretty heavy at the time. Thankfully, because of some connections with Duke, uh, they threw me what I will I'll describe as a lifeline. They threw me the opportunity, the chance to handle public address for football and volleyball at the time. So it was an interesting transition for me, knowing that I was going to work in a home office, knowing that I had to figure out who it is I wanted to work with and who wanted to work with me and not having that natural day-to-day -day punch a clock, going to the office, that routine that so many of us are used to. Uh, so to describe it in one word, it was unsettling, uh, but time does heal some wounds. Time, time does allow you to build some calluses and new opportunities. So thankful for where I am 11 years later, actually 12 years later. You mentioned that you worked in sports for a very long time now, going all the way back to your days in minor league baseball. And it's a really interesting business with what you work in with the marketing departments, because things have changed drastically since when you first got into sports. So can you kind of describe what it was like working in sports, specifically in marketing departments and event operations when you first started compared to now? If you look at my LinkedIn profile, and I'm not trying to be a sycophant for everybody to say, hey, go look at me and all of that. But I recently ran across a minor league baseball, in essence, it was a best practice book. And what minor league baseball did at the end of every season is they sent out a query to all of the clubs. And it was like 162 minor league clubs at the time. And they said, send us one or two pages of your most successful promotion your most successful event that you had this past year, we in St. Petersburg, we will compile them into one big binded book and we'll send everybody a copy. And Don, we waited at the mailboxes every October to get that big, thick book so we could thumb through, we could see what everybody did from the Lansing lug nuts to the Savannah sand gnats, we wanted to see so that we could build our schedule for the next year with great marketing practices that were new for us. And to your point, there have been a lot of changes since. There are no more books being sent out. You find all the resources online. You don't have to worry about the paper tickets because tickets are now digital for the most part. So if you think about technology being the game changer when it comes to marketing and branding, you're a perfect example on this podcast. You are branding yourself because of the use of technology, right? The podcast. So I think every generation can look back and say, it's this thing that affected that. And boy, wasn't that significant, you know, back in the 1800s when sliced bread became a thing. I mean, that was the best thing, right? And so now here we are in a marketing standpoint, we've got all these widgets that can hopefully help us brand and, and market better. So long answer to a really short question, but that guide, that big thick book, uh, I remember that just being something back in the day. And it's crazy because along with technology, I mean, teams are just getting much more creative. The Savannah Banana is a minor league team. I don't know if you've seen what they've been doing lately, but the whole banana ball rule, and they had someone who was batting in stilts, uh, you know, and 20 years ago, if you just throw a guy up to the plate who's, you know, walking on stilts to go hit or they're wearing kilts when they play, it almost seemed like that would never happen 20 years ago. Yeah, but if you take it all the way back and uh, Bill Veck, when he owned the Chicago White Sox, you know, Bill Veck was the master of promotion, so much so that his son, Mike Veck, who not only owns a minor league club in Minnesota, but also is a majority owner of the Charleston River Dogs in Charleston, South Carolina. He has taken what his dad first started 
had really blown it up. You know, Mike Veck, when he was in Charleston or in Charleston years ago, he created two promotions that I thought were brilliant. Uh, one was nobody night. You know, he went five and a half innings with no one in the stands and recorded the lowest minor league attendance for a single event because literally there was nobody there. Now, when the game became official based on the line score, he opened up the gates and people came in. The second promotion that he had was vasectomy night. On Father's Day, he had booths that were going to be set up along the concourse and you as a male could walk into the minor league ballpark and you could have a vasectomy performed. Now, I don't think that Mike ever intended to really execute vasectomy night, but think about all the pub. So to a point, Don, you can still get away with such things like the Savannah Bananas are doing, but you have to understand the market. You have to understand the temperature and the tone of the country uh, in order to give yourself the best chance of, of pulling that off. Isn't it crazy how the world's changed where we once had a promotion for empty seat night and now sports all across the country are having empty seat night every night. That, that's a great pickup. And I, uh, I hate that we're at that point. And I would think that we are going to slowly ramp back into having, uh, but where the light switch cut off in March of 2020, the light switch is going to be slowly cut back on like a dimmer switch coming back on in 2021, 22. Now picking up before COVID when there were fans and we were able to have all these types of promotions, uh, you know, when it comes down to game day promotions and the technology behind it, such as video boards, such as what you see now with the sound and lighting and all that other stuff, how different was that when you first started working into now with everything going into it, including, you know, the new video boards, like I said, and the, um, the lighting and all that other stuff? Well, showing my age, and I'm not ashamed to do it, you know, there was no social media, there really was no internet at the time that I got into the industry. So it has changed dramatically over the last 20, 25 years. I do wonder what the effect of being really heavy in digital and technology for a game day experience, I wonder what that has as being the, the total outcome of the in-game experience. Meaning that if you are buried into your phone or if you're buried by constantly looking at the video board, are you missing out on all the other extemporaneous things that are going on around you? The sights, the sounds, the smell, the feels, uh, are you going to be as engrossed in a memory if a lot of your memory is involved with technology that you're touching and feeling every day anyway, like the phone? Um, this is gonna be a, a tangent and I realize it. But the one thing that's wearing me out about video meetings is that even though the content is different every time, the setting is the same. It's still my four walls in the office. Right. It's still the, the aroma that I get when I walk into my office. It's not somebody else's carpet, right? It's not somebody else's coffee that they offer me to drink when I go for a visit. So I don't have a whole lot of discerning memories from one video meeting to the next because the environment's the same. If I'm at a stadium and I am moving towards making sure people are engaged on their phone and looking at my video board, are they really going to have a memory? Because, you know, they didn't happen to go around the concourse and engage with a peanut vendor who's got something really fun going on at his kiosk where he's selling peanuts. It's a stretch of, of an analogy, but hopefully I make the point. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the thing that's interesting, we talk a lot about the baseball teams, the White Sox and the uh, you know, Savannah Bananas, but for other teams, you know, it's really interesting. Other sports, even basketball promotions differ from baseball and uh, so on and so forth. But for you working with so many different teams, do you have teams that are more on the side of let's do things, all technology, let's hammer the promotions, whereas other teams are more traditional? Yeah, the, the schools primarily are, are where I'm working. I, I don't really work much in the, the realm of teams. So I, I view it as, as schools. And every school is a little bit different, Don. And I know that's going to sound a bit clicheic, but I'm working on a project right now for a Division II school in which through the assessment, through the work with their staff, technology really hasn't come into it. It's coming down to a question of culture and process and procedures that maybe in time will lead to a conversation about technology. But there are other schools, there are power five schools that that is really their main focus right now from a marketing standpoint is how do we leverage technology 
to touch people. And they are probably less about the pizza scream between the first and second quarter of a women's basketball game. They are more about making sure that the brand touch through social, just as an example, making sure that's as strong as it can be. So it's not a bailout on your question, but I do think that every school is different. How has working with, say, a Power 5 school differed from working with a Division three school? Because on one hand, you have, you know, Michigan football. Everyone wants to go to Michigan football games, whereas D3 soccer, you know, you might struggle with getting some of the promotions. So for you, how has that differed working within the different divisions of the NCAA and even the NIAA? Well, I appreciate you asking. The I, I guess the easiest way to, to – place this this answer is that I know which lane I need to be in and I realize that the mid-majors of division one division two II, division three NAI and even even the NJCAA um, everybody within those areas are more they're probably more likely to want to engage somebody like me than a power five my skill sets and the opportunities that I'm able to bring to a collaboration are more aligned with where the mid-major through the NJCAA are. They're more aligned so that lane is easier for both of us. Uh, for me to go to, to your example, Michigan, just picking a power five and to say, I have these particular sets of skills and I have these abilities that might assist you. I think they've got such a large staff that they don't need someone of my ilk. Conversely, a division three school, just picking one, uh, might only have one person who's in charge of external and that, that includes communications, what branding they do do, what some marketing that they are able to undertake. So you've got a, a lot shorter staff, uh, windows of opportunities that are a little bit tighter I think that's where I'm a little bit more to the benefit of them than, again, to your, your analogy of Michigan. Now, speaking with big schools, obviously Duke Athletics, one of the bigger ones in the nation. So I did want to touch on your PA experience there. So first to start, how did that uh, opportunity come about? And was that something you were prepared? Uh, you know, did you have PA experience prior to that? Did you have to go through a tryout? How did that all kind of come about? Let's go back to high school. I am walking between classes on the bottom floor of our three-story high school. And the athletic director, who's also a teacher, he's got his classroom on that floor. And as I was walking by at one particular moment on one particular day, he popped out of the classroom and said, Durham, I need somebody to handle public address tonight for the JV football game. Do you want to do it? you know, at 14, 15 years old, Don, you don't want to disappoint an elder. So yeah, I'll do it. I have no idea what the hell it is I just committed to, but I'll do it. Um, so I'm in the public address booth that night and a buddy of mine was my spotter. It was rainy. It was Halloween night. There might've been 17 people in the stands and just sort of figured it out. And so that was sort of the, uh, the tinder that lit the fire for me. And over the years, over the decades, I had a chance to hone the craft sounds really pretentious, but I had the chance to sit in a chair, work with a microphone, different environments. So if you build all of those experiences up to an opportunity in which I went and met with Kevin White at Duke, Kevin was only about a year in the chair at Duke, having come over from Notre Dame. I was going through my transition from Elon and Kevin and I knew one another only in passing at some national events. And I had a colleague of mine reintroduce me to Kevin and Kevin was nice enough to uh, have me over in the office. I wasn't asking for anything, just wanted to let him know that I was 30 minutes away. So if you need something, please don't hesitate. And he says, well, why don't you go talk to this guy? And so this guy is Boo Corrigan and Boo at the time was on Kevin's staff at Duke. Boo is now at NC State as the athletics director. Boo called me the next day, said, why don't you come on back over, let's talk. Boo and I met and then he says, well, why don't we go talk to this guy? walk down the hall and it turns out to be somebody that I've known for about 20 years in the, in the business. He's in their sports information office and he goes, yeah, we're going to need somebody new for football. Here's some copy, go home, cut the read, send it back. We'll see what it sounds like. I did that, send it back. About two months later, I hear from another guy on the Duke staff and he goes, yeah, we want to hire you for football. 
But our volleyball coach was walking by my office when I was listening to your audition, and she wanted to know if you'd be interested in volleyball public address. Uh, I said, certainly. And Don, it was a bit strategic because I knew if I could get my sound in that building, and that building is Cameron Indoor because that's where volleyball competes, then maybe if there was ever a need, if I established myself with confidence for football, maybe they would ask me for basketball. And sure enough, uh, the longtime public address announcer at Cameron Indoor, uh, Dr. Art Chandler, he had been there for 40 years behind the mic. He decided to retire. And after Duke won the national championship in Indianapolis in 2010, I was invited to the office. They sat me in a chair that was a bench chair in Indy from a couple of months prior. And they asked if I would be interested. And I think before the question even came out, I was probably saying yes. And that might have been a little pretentious of me to assume that that was going to be the question. But uh, I said yes. And I, I think it's been a, a great relationship. And if I can just ramble on for another minute, I think my value with Duke stems from the idea that I have been in college athletics. I have been in minor league baseball. I understand the run of show. I have hired public address announcers myself. So I understand what it is Duke is trying to execute from a game day experience every day because I built my career on that. And I think the two just really do mesh well. It's great that you were talking about how your experience with game operations and game events, whether that be you know script reading, understanding the script, understanding, understanding the game flow, uh, how did that help you when you went into Duke as the PA announcer for basketball? Yeah, a lot of it, Don, is timing because you understand the rhythm of football. You understand the rhythm of basketball. You know when media timeouts are going to occur. You know what it is that the game director is trying to accomplish with an on-field presentation because you once were the ones that were coordinating the on-field presentations. I used to be the one pulling the public address announcer and all the parties together going, now look, here's the vision on execution. Well, now I'm part of the same execution. I'm just doing it from a different chair, a different role. Malcolm Gladwell speaks to 10,000 hours. If you do anything really well for 10,000 hours, uh, then you're going to have it just be part of what it is you do. You'll get good at it, and it's just part of who you are. And thankfully, I've handled public address, I wouldn't say for 10,000 hours, but hopefully the point is made. And I think you're now, I want to say, the fourth guest on this podcast that has gotten one of their first starts in sports from filling in from a high school PA, including myself. So uh, it's definitely a popular way to get in there. So I guess for all the high school students out there that are listening, I would say uh, definitely if someone asks you to jump in for PA, it might be a good start. Yeah, raise your hand. I think there are so many people with Generation Y and Z that are concerned about what's in it for me right now at this moment, meaning paycheck. Uh, some type of back scratch. You know, the opportunity that someone is giving you to hone a craft, to get experience, to get chair time, just do it. Don't worry about the here and now. You know, this, this life I've come to notice is a bit of a marathon and not a sprint. And so where you are at 53 is certainly not going to be the same place where you were at 16. But at 16, you got to figure out how to get to 53. And I think it also speaks to a lot that you started off doing the women's, ba uh, women's volleyball because it was like, hey, this is what, you know, it's a start. Like you said, you just want to get your voice heard in, you know, Cameron and Door. And I think that that's a big part of sports in general is just getting your foot in the door and saying, hey, one opportunity could possibly lead to another. So don't try to not deny any opportunity you get. Yeah, I could not agree more. Now, Cameron Indoor, obviously known as one of the loudest places to play in the country when it comes to basketball. So before COVID, I have to ask, what was it like working some of those crazy games? And for you being the one that is, you know, your job is basically to get the crowd fired up once something big happens. Well, I like to think that um, I don't like the title voice of Cameron Indoor because there are 9,314 other voices on a nightly basis. Mine just happens to be the one with a push to talk button. Um, it's the environment can be off the chain. I remember my first North Carolina game, the engineering folks, the sound techs at the end of the table, they were keeping a sound meter, a decibel meter. And I asked them at the end of the game, I said, how loud did it get from an analogy standpoint? And they said, well, the number is this, but this number equates to a jet engine firing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because it was pretty loud. 
What's interesting for me, and I was thinking about it a couple of weeks ago, is that the environment actually shrinks for me on game day. There are two environments. One, it's the overall venue. It's the feel, the smell. When you walk into Cameron in the South Lobby, it smells like an old gym. And I mean that in the highest of compliments. I mean, there's a varnish. You smell there's some wood. There's, you hear the dribble, so you know there's some leather going on. There are a lot of aromas going on. But when the game starts, I find that the 94 feet shrink to where I am concentrating on that. I'm aware of what's going on behind me. But I think I'm executing for not only the student athletes, but I'm also executing for my table mates, the show caller, the scoreboard operator, the people that I've become friends with. I'm doing it as part of that team. So even though the fans are a beneficiary of the work that I'm doing, this is going to sound awful. I'm doing it for them. But I think primarily to make sure that I stay in the moment and I do my job, I'm doing it for the student athletes. I'm doing it for the people at the table. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you ever get nervous? Is there, are there any nerves that come into it during some of those big games? You mentioned the first UNC game. I'm sure that's got to be one where you were like, oh, man, this is, this is the big stage here. I, 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 I think it's nerves, but I'd like to – con myself to say that it's just um, excited anticipation uh, my the scoreboard note the shot I can't remember which clock he was running at the time but he actually filmed me or recorded me with starting intros one time from his position down the table and I noticed that my left leg was thumping like a rabbit so I I think it's just part of making sure that my nerves don't get to a point to where I blow something. Uh, I want to make sure that I, I'm, I'm in the moment, but I'm not over the top. And again, you go back to 10,000 hours, and I don't want this to sound like it's just commonplace for me now, but it's a comfortable building. It's my office. It's where I go to perform to do my work. And I've done the work there so many times that I don't know that nerves factor into it. I'm excited. I don't know that I'm nervous. Now, a lot of PA announcers have their signature calls, whether it be a three-point shot, starting lineup, anything like that. For you, how long did it take you to get your calls down? Was it something you were practicing, you know, in the mirror before the games? Or how long did it take you before you really settled on? <laughs> My wife would chuckle if she knew that you asked if I was standing in front of a mirror, because if I ever did that, that would probably be the end of anything I could ever hold on her. Um, my, this is going to sound like a bailout again, but every year it seems that there's a little bit something different, not dramatic. So I'll give you a, a couple of examples that come to mind. Uh, you're quite familiar that Miles Mason and Marshall Plumley played at Duke, three brothers that each in their own way overlapped another. So when they would sub in for one another, I thought it ridiculous that I would say Plumley twice. Checking into the ball game, number 21, Miles Plumley, replacing number five, Mason Plumley. I would just say substitution for Duke, Miles for Mason. And so that became a thing even when Mason graduated uh, or when Miles graduated and became Mason and Marshall, it was Marshall for Mason. Um, there's also a rhythm that I found a few years ago that when a sub for Duke comes in for the first time during the ball game, I will introduce them in a way that almost resembles the starting lineup. The way that I approach it, when the sixth person comes in for the first time, Blue Devil fans, please welcome to the floor number 21, Emil Jefferson. So it gives Emil the chance to feel like, you know, I wasn't part of the starting lineup tonight, but I'm getting that credit. And it allows the room to get a little extra boost because people love Emil. And boy, aren't we happy that Emil is in the ball game now. I did develop a rhythm years ago that I've stayed with. This is not part of the evolution uh, when the starting intros hit. Uh, I call it as uh, basketball fans, it is now time for us to introduce to you the starters of tonight's contest, first for the visiting Tar Heels of North Carolina. So that keeps me in sync 
you know, repetition, you know, as well as I do, you become a creature of habit when it comes to public address and whatever habits you can maintain that just helps you knock down the nerves, helps you stay in rhythm. So those are the three things that come to mind right off. The one thing that's interesting about basketball, as opposed to say football is you are literally right on court side. You know, you get kind of the court side view where football, you're in the press box. So for someone that's had the opportunity to be courtside at some of these great games and see some of the things that coach K has done and other coaches have done, what unique experiences have you had uh, being courtside to see some of the greatest coaches and players of all time in that stadium? Well, my favorite is February 22nd, 2014. That's the first time that Syracuse was coming in to play Duke and Cameron Indoor is part of a member of the league. It's two good friends that are hanging out with one another uh, in Shashevsky and Bayheim. And towards the end of the ball game, really tight scenario, Rodney Hood for Duke drives and Tony Green, the official, is is, is either going to be a block or a charge, block or a charge. And if it's a charge, uh, then great for Bayheim. But if it's a block, then Syracuse in, will end up losing the game. And, you know, block charge is the hardest thing in basketball for an official to call. And it turned out to be a block against Syracuse. And Bayheim went off his nut. And he'll, he'll even tell you to this day he went off his nut. So he goes running up the sideline to about my position and takes a hard right. And a hard right is not coming over to have a conversation with me. A hard right is going onto the floor to protest the call. And it was two quick technicals, and Bayheim was ejected. Uh, so that is the number one memory. Thankfully, in a way, my position is further from the Duke bench and closer to the visiting bench. And I say thankfully because, to your point, Don, I get a chance to witness all these great personalities that come in. It's watching the, the style of, of Tony Bennett. It's seeing the personality at the time of uh, Buzz Williams when he was at Virginia Tech. Rest his soul, Rick Majerus, when he was the head coach for St. Louis and came to Cameron Indoor. Uh, seeing the large man that he is, not only physically, but the personality that he had. And it was all right there in front of me. So there is a value in being able to be in that building that's well beyond that of the Duke experience. It's being able to see those other programs, to your point up close and personal. And that's what I've always liked about college basketball is that there are no helmets, there are no face masks. You can see the character of the kid a little bit more up close and personal. And then that allows you to create your own affinity for the kid, the character, the program, and all that is something like Duke basketball. Now we've talked a lot about games with fans, but this year, obviously a little bit different in the NCAA tournament, but to that you were selected to be the ACC PA announcer as well as the first two rounds of the tournament so for you what was that like working the NCAA tournament this year and also just in general working the NCAA tournament well it was the ACC this year last year I was to work the first and second rounds in Greensboro but because of the COVID scenario uh, that didn't happen my public address was sort of uh, in two different buckets this year as well one at, at Duke in which the administration for the campus decided in July of last year, that there will be no fans of any kind for any sport for what we do play this year. So in Cameron Indoor, you had support staff, you had life flight from Duke Hospital. So there might have been, Don, 30 people in the building, but they were all working staff. Now for the ACC tournament, because of the time that it hit, the state of North Carolina relaxed some of the gathering protocols, and there were fans in the building for both the women's tournament and the men's tournament. And granted, not a lot. I think 2,500 might have been the sales capacity for the building at the Greensboro Coliseum, but still people. So between the two, you know, Duke basketball uh, always has this, this energy when the starting five are announced. Every school does. So when I announced, I think it was Coppin State might have been the first game this year, ladies and gentlemen, or basketball fans, I still went through that routine. Now time for us to introduce you to the stars of today, Coppin State, yada, yada, these five, they're coached by whoever. And then the video rolls for Duke, and because the student athletes, we want to keep them in rhythm, it's boom, into the video. And now basketball fans, the starting five for your Duke Blue Devils. Uh, introducing a what, blah, blah, number one, whoever, and... And when I read the name, there's no explosion behind me. 
there's no 9,200. And it was surreal. It was, the silence was deafening. So I told myself, well, I guess I got to go into the next guy because I don't have to wait for any loud cheering or applause. Now with the ACC tournament, different because I did have those pauses to wait for because there was energy coming from a smattering of fans throughout the stands. So it was uh, really reassuring for me that maybe we are getting towards the end of this thing in our own way. I don't, I don't think we'll ever be truly out of it, but at least there is the hope that we will have those energies back in the building again. What was it like being present during COVID in regards to how much different your everyday trip to Cameron Indoor was with the testing and everything? Because obviously it was so difficult where this season, if one player from any team in the NCAA got COVID, you know, they're missing a couple games, even a couple weeks. It may be to my fault, but I will admit that on game day, I wasn't as fired up during the regular season as I normally was. A lot of that has to do with the congeniality that you have with the people that you're working around. You normally, I would show up about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes before tip, go through a routine, but then get a chance just to hang out with people that I like hanging out with. The sports information crew, some of the TV folks, just being able to be in the moment. But because of my, um, my status within the program's operations, you know, there's tier one, tier two, tier three people. Uh, I'm not tier one, so I'm not on the floor. I'm in a remote area in Cameron. And so knowing that I couldn't be part of all of that that I was used to, I'd wake up on game day and go, yeah, I get to, I, I have the opportunity to go do the game, but I'm not that excited about it. But I can tell you, Don, the closer I got to campus and the closer I got to the building and after I walked through the doors and after I got into the bowl, I'm like, okay, I'm fired up again. So it was a different progression for me. Um, testing was fine. I, I tested once a week at Duke for the tournaments I had to test every day. And it's just part of the routine. I don't want to call it a new normal because I think new normal not only was overused early on, but I don't think as a, as a species that is going to be our normal. It's just something that you, you deal with, you get through and you, you move on. Just make it part of the routine. Now, along with basketball, you said you've worked uh, PA for you do the public address announcing for football as well. And those are two extremely different sports when it comes to public address announcing. As we mentioned earlier, one, you're on the floor, one, you're in the press box. So for you, what's it like going from PA in basketball where you're right on the floor, you see clearly who the foul is on, as opposed to football where you might have a spotter or you're just looking down at the field, seeing who made the tackle? Yeah, go, I'm going to use rhythm. I think if we're keeping count, this is going to be like the ninth time I've used the word rhythm. Uh, basketball, there are just a certain number of scenarios that can happen. Uh, you're going to shoot and score. You're going to have a foul. You're going to move from one end of the court to the other. Um, a couple of passes, a couple of blocks. So there are a certain set of circumstances that you know to look for, and that's going to happen in a very short window of time, two hours for the most part. And you're right, it's all right in front of you. Football, there are dozens of scenarios that could occur, and they could occur 350 feet away from you, and you are going to have to have a spotter to help out. Uh, your time is going to be a lot longer, especially with television timeouts these days. So the rhythm is different. Spotter helps tremendously. And generally with football, uh, my guy handles defense, I handle offense. There are some programs in which they've got a defensive spotter and an offensive spotter. I don't like to operate that way. Too many people in the booth, too much stuff going on. And so if you have a really good spotter, you get into the rhythm again, using that word, you get into sync with one another and it really flows pretty well. And again, if you're in the chair long enough, if you're in the same stadium long enough, you get to understand what the crowd's going to give you, what's going to happen in certain scenarios. So I wouldn't say it becomes easier, but it comes, becomes really familiar. Do you find it a little more difficult to play off of the fans when in Cameron Indoor you have fans literally on top of you as opposed to kind of being isolated in the press box in football? That's a really good question because the one thing you don't I, – I subscribe to anyway. The one thing you don't want to be as a public address announcer is someone that is just too over the top. You, know, you are part of the event. You are not the event. So at Cameron, there will be times because to your description, people are right on top of you that things happen 
I'll give you a great example. Zion Williamson and that iconic dunk uh, against Clemson a couple of years ago. Place went bat crazy, right? I mean, just editing myself there so you don't have to do it later. Bat crazy. And so the place was just alive. And there was no reason for me to open up the mic and go, Zion Williamson. Everybody knew what happened. Uh, it's right there in front of them. So I just laid out. Now, with football, if there is a big third down that has just moved into the opposition side of the field and the ball is now marked at the 11-yard line, the chains are going to move, you can feel the energy building, yeah, you may put a little bit of a grind in your voice. You're certainly not screaming, but you are helping the environment. You are helping the show director create an energy that will allow him or her to do something new on the video board, to execute something new from the DJ. So you are playing a part in that excitement. So you could go from being a great compliment in football to not even being considered in basketball because the environment's so different. All right, before we move on to our final segment, uh, one more question. I want to touch on your experience as president for NACLA and some of the things that you did specifically you highlighted in the LinkedIn, the convention after Hurricane Katrina. So can you kind of speak on that and what went into that? Hurricane Katrina, uh, and I'm looking at a proclamation, uh, although this is an audio podcast, obviously, the City Council of New Orleans actually sent me and some other leaders a proclamation thanking us for being the first major convention post-Hurricane uh, Katrina. Katrina hit in the summer of 2005, and I remember watching the highlights thinking, there is absolutely no way. The convention had been planned for New Orleans for like two or three years. There's absolutely no way we're going to be able to host our convention there. And it's the marketing directors, it's the athletic directors, development directors, facilities. I mean, it's everybody under that college athletics umbrella. Um, but through a lot of great planning, a lot of great teamwork, uh, it happened. And it happened to a point to where we were all very prideful that it did. Um, it took a lot of creativity because there were a lot of restaurants that had lost not only their ability to serve, but they had lost a lot of their staff. People that when Katrina hit, people just jetted, went for other places to go work. There were some restaurants in New Orleans at the time that they had two seatings for dinner. They had a six o'clock seating and an 8.30 seating. And they did that because they didn't have the staff to be able to do rolling reservations throughout the night. And they had to clean the kitchen and get out because the staff that served you dinner are the same ones coming back for lunch the next day because again, they didn't have the personnel in the city. So it was one of my professional feathers in the cap. Thankfully, I've been along, around in this industry long enough to where I've seen a lot of great things, but that is my number one career highlight being able to program the marketing agenda and execute for the convention in 2006. And it's definitely almost, I feel like a special sense of pride knowing that there's so many obstacles to overcome. I mean, the latest example now with COVID, even now when you're able to have a big event, it's almost like a sense of pride because a year ago it didn't seem possible. And I feel like that was definitely the case back in 2006 after Hurricane Katrina. It's a win, and I realize that this is a podcast that is going to survive well after the 2021 NCAA tournament, but I think everything that is happening in Indianapolis, everything that's happening in San Antonio, for the most part, being able to pull it off, I mean, that, that, that's amazing for people like Danny Gavitt and, and the crew in, in Indianapolis, so good for them. Definitely a great experience over there in Indianapolis, what they're doing right now. Uh, but yeah, that's great advice and, uh, you know, great, great story over there with Hurricane Katrina and what you were able to do down in New Orleans. So now final segment, we like to call it the sideline report. Uh, just a couple of quick hit questions, give the audience a little bit of a better feel of uh, some of the things you've done and experienced. First question, favorite game at Duke as a PA announcer? Favorite game it. There's so many, but the one that comes to mind, Ryan Kelly, who was a product of the high school in Raleigh. Uh, Ryan Kelly was out with an ankle injury, was out for three or four weeks, was a dramatic blow to the Duke team. He comes back in his first game against Miami, lights it up for 36 points. 
and there was not a time that Ryan Kelly didn't touch the basketball in which all of the fans in Duke were sitting on the edges of their seat ready to explode, and they exploded 36 points worth. So I can't give you the date right off. It was eight years ago maybe at the time of this podcast. Uh, That would be my favorite. All right. Favorite stadium you've been in besides Cameron Indoor? Uh, I've had the chance to be in a lot of them. I think the one that comes to mind, because that's generally how these things work, right? It's the first thing that pops your mind. (laughs) I had the chance to tour Candlestick Park before it was dismantled a couple of years ago. So without fans, unfettered access, being able just to walk and touch and feel, uh, that is a memory that sticks out pretty well. What about your favorite sport to announce? It's basketball. Um, the, the thing about basketball that I love so much is that it's always 72 degrees. There's never any rain. You can count on the clock to get you in and out in about two hours. And to your point earlier about being able to be up close and personal, the physicality, how quick, how accomplished, and being able to see it up close and personal, I love college basketball. What about your favorite moment as a PA announcer, your favorite call rather? So something that you just, you saw the moment and you just laid into the call. You know, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to take that just in a little bit of a different direction. And you can actually find this on YouTube through ESPN. When Dean Smith passed away, the North Carolina basketball coaching legend, when he passed away, it was within within a few days of Duke and North Carolina playing in Cameron. And Duke administration had scripted a pregame moment of silence for Coach Smith in which the Duke basketball players and coaches, along with the North Carolina basketball players and coaches, knelt at midcourt, arm in arm with one another. You know, the greatest rivalry in college basketball. But they had come together in this moment of pregame recognition. And it was my reader that dressed, it was my reader that dressed all of that. And while it is not a moment of pure uh, adulation or jubilation, a, a time to reflect and knowing that I got to be a part of that, that would stand out to me. It's giving me chills thinking about it. That's I actually got a couple of goosebumps as I was describing it. So, Don, I appreciate you saying that. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Favorite? Not, not that you haven't already, but please, <laughs> just another one or two. Yeah, one more, one more. <laughs> Favorite Duke player, but can you do it in a as if they just made a three-point call? You're the PA uh, voice for Duke here. They just made a three-point call. Your call of your favorite player at Duke. The um the certainly the the way that this rolls off is not gonna have the same tenniness, the same bass, <laughs> the same echo. Of course not. Uh, but for for the years that he played, anytime that he would hoist and make a three. I always like calling Andre Dawkins because the way that the four syllables hit for me, there is a way that you can really leverage the moment. And so when Andre would hit it, it would be, I don't know how high up I would take three pointer, but I would really emphasize Andre Dawkins doing the same thing right now with Joey Baker because there's just something about the J and the B that allows you to get the four syllables of Joey Baker. And it just sort of pops. Um, So those two come to mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. And last question before we go, it's a staple of the show. Last question we ask uh, movie made about you, who's playing you and what's the movie about? The title is the title of the movie is Push to Talk. Uh, I thought that that would be the the autobiography if I was so pedantic enough to say that yeah I should write a book about myself. Um, my mother thought that I resembled Tim Russert, and Tim has obviously since passed, and he wasn't an actor anyway, more of a journalist. Um, Tom Hanks, because I think our our skulls are shaped about the same. I think our I think there's some defining lines within the cheeks that would allow Hanks to pull off me. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> um, so I'll go with 
Tom Hanks, I mean, geez, he's got enough hardware, right? So maybe he could get another piece of brass by playing me. <laughs> it's so right. odd to say out loud. We'll try to, we'll try to make that happen here in the future. Thanks for, uh, yeah, you let me know how that episode 24 with Tom Hanks goes. <laughs> you talk about episode 23 and tie it all back together. Yeah, we'll try to uh, contact his agent, see what happens. <laughs> Funny. And uh, last but not least here, just a piece of advice. I'd like to ask this for anyone, uh, you know, for everyone that's listened throughout this podcast, uh, just a piece of advice for those looking to break into the industry from someone who has done it for so many years. I, I said it earlier, raise your hand. Uh, when somebody is looking for somebody to fill a role, you do it. Uh, an example in my life, I, for one season, was the mic man for East Carolina football. You know, the cheerleader with the microphone. Uh, I went to the interest meeting. My intention was to try out to be the mascot. The cheerleading coach said, all right, who's here to try out for cheerleading? And I watched all the hands go up. Who's here to try out to be a mascot? For some reason, I waited. And there were like five or six hands that went up. All right, who's here to try out to be the mic man? No hands went up, Don. So I said, me, and I raised my hand. And that led to an opportunity that was of, of special experience. So raise your hand. Don't worry about that here and now. Think about where it may take you. And so that would be my, my closer. Just raise your hand. Trip, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Listen, I'm flattered for the invite. I can't wait to see who's number 24. They've got a high bar to jump now, right? <laughs> Definitely. That was episode 23 with Trip Durham, longtime PA voice for Duke Athletics, president of NACMA, former associate director of athletics for Elon University, and founder of 2D Consulting. If you liked this episode, you can follow us on Twitter at OTS underscore podcast underscore or on Instagram at OTS underscore pod. Make sure you give us a rate and review on the Apple Store or Spotify or even SoundCloud here on the On the Sidelines podcast. This has been episode 23 with Trip Durham. We will see you all for episode 24.